<clears throat> since we have finished with the uh, sutta that we were discussing, states of consciousness, Potapada's questions, and the Buddha's answers, I thought we could look at the loving-kindness discourse, the one you're chanting in the morning. Most of the chanting in this tradition are teachings. They're either teachings or they are homage and reverence to Buddha Dhamma Sangha. Either one or the other. And this discourse is very beloved and um, chanted extensively, particularly in Sri Lanka, but also in Thailand. And most temples, monasteries and nunneries chant it every day. Now, when one chants it every day, one eventually knows it by heart, which is uh, helpful. But also, it can become mechanical. They are just sounds in the end. And one doesn't give any real attention to the meaning behind the words. These are teachings of the Buddha. And it's quite important to have a deeper insight into what he is trying to tell us. And this particular discourse, out of the Sutta Nipata, which is the fifth of the collections in the Pali Canon, one of the oldest collections of the whole Pali Canon, and all scholars are unanimous in saying that that's definitely the Buddha's words, without any additions or subtractions. So we'll have a look at what he's telling us there, what the teaching is. And when we do know that and take it to heart, it can make a lot of difference. There's one thing that is of the essence when one knows or listens to the teaching of the Buddha or to any teaching for that matter which is on a spiritual level that first one hears it and then one might remember it but then there's another step how am I going to do this and if that step doesn't happen no matter how many discourses one knows or hears or how many books one has read nothing shifts the question is how am I going to do this that the Buddha knew all about it is evident that the sages and the mystics know all about it that's evident but what about me and there's no other way to grow on the spiritual path unless one asks that question and then tries to actually bring it about that I can do it.
one will know immediately that it's a task. One will know that it takes time. But one will also know that one's inner being is changing. And that brings joy to the heart. If one recalls how in the past certain things would have upset one, would have made one sad, worried, and having taken the teaching to heart, they don't even touch one. So the question is always, how can I do that? I'm the only one that is in question there. Everybody else will have to do it on their own. The first sentence in the discourse is, what should be done by one who is skilled in wholesomeness? And that sentence is already interesting because it tells us that wholesomeness, goodness, is a skill and needs to be learned like all other skills. It's not natural to mankind. We are both. We are wholesome and unwholesome. And nobody is exempt except the Arahant. So, if we have a sort of um, exaggerated idea of how nice we are, or how friendly, or how immune from nastiness, we should quickly take another look. Or, if we have an exaggerated idea, how nasty we are, and how lacking in friendliness, we should also take another look. Everybody's got 50-50. There are some that have 60-40, but they're rare. Those that have 60-40 on the negative side usually go to jail. And those that have 60-40 on the positive side, they are even harder to find. It's 50-50 for mankind. And whenever the ego gets touched in any manner or form, the nasty side erupts. And the only way to gain the skill of wholesomeness, the only possible way is to know that in oneself, that this eruption takes place. Now the eruption may be mild, it may be strong, it doesn't matter. If we don't recognize the eruption, there's nothing we will be able to do. To gain the state of wholesomeness means, of course, thoughts and emotions. Now, when those two are not really recognized to be connected, it becomes very difficult to recognize oneself, how one really is. The thought process is a sense contact and therefore generates feeling. And if the thought process is a negative one, the feeling will be most unpleasant. 
and the reaction to that will be extremely negative and then there will be a new negativity with a new unpleasant feeling and the whole thing keeps churning around so we need to recognize the connection that our thinking has to our emotions and we need to recognize the connection that our emotions have to our thinking they are actually constantly in touch with each other and the more emotions there are the less clear thinking emotions even even those that are desirable when they become overwhelming will also create a lack of clarity in the thinking the highest emotion is equanimity so that's why that first aspect of that teaching says what should be done by one who is skilled in wholesomeness to gain the state of peacefulness is this so if there is the skill of wholesomeness the peacefulness will be gained now peacefulness is the utmost inner level of experience that everybody would like to have peacefulness which cannot be touched by outer conditions peacefulness which is also a lack of restlessness Teach, uh, peacefulness is a lack of anxiety it's a lack of fear it's a lack of planning for the future and remembering the past because peacefulness is now and it hinges and depends on wholesomeness now what we've done in the past has no bearing on this moment except for the karmic resultants but those we have to deal with no matter what so what we can look at is that we are starting now every single moment that's when we're starting the past brings karmic resultants no doubt but if you remember the story of Angulimala even with a dreadful past like his he was still able to change himself and his life completely so most likely we don't have such a dreadful past as he has so it's this moment which counts the rest of the time that we have been alive in this lifetime has so to say gone down the drain it's gone and there's no need to bring it up into the present there's nothing we can do about it anymore for instance if we remember having met a friend at the time we met that person we could see and touch that person 
We can't do that in our memory. It's not possible to have that kind of reality to it. So we might as well leave it where it is. It has gone down into the whole residue of time. If we were to live in this moment, we would live in the eternal now. The peacefulness can only be experienced now. It's not in the past. It's not in the future. It's an inner being. That's all it is. So the future is of no concern and neither is the past. And if we regret anything about the past, we won't be peaceful. And if we hope for anything in the future, we won't be peaceful either. So we can see that even those things which we consider wholesome, like hope for better days or regret that we've done something wrong, will destroy our peacefulness and are therefore not wholesome. Because this is what we're learning here, that if we really practice the skill of wholesomeness, we will be peaceful. We will gain the state of peacefulness. It also tells us that the state of peacefulness is something we have to gain, something we have to make happen. It isn't natural to mankind, unfortunately. Most people can keep their anxieties and restlessness in bounds and are not chasing around constantly, but some people can't even do that. Some people are moving from one place to the next, if not with the body, then with the mind, and of course the body is then a manifestation of that. So we have to gain that state. We don't come equipped with it. If you've ever watched a baby, and most people have in this lifetime, either their own or somebody else's, you can see that the moments of peacefulness are short and rare. Most of the time something is happening. Screaming its head off because it's not getting what it wants, or screaming its head off because it's getting what it doesn't want, like a tummy ache or wet diapers or something. So peacefulness is very short and usually happens in sleep. Now, that's not the kind of peacefulness that is meant here, because even in sleep there is the unconscious churning away and creating dreams for us, some of them pleasant, some of them unpleasant. Peacefulness is a state of inner being which is independent of outer conditions, which one creates within oneself through one's abilities, the abilities of wholesomeness, the abilities of a loving heart, and the ability to recognize that the world out there isn't going to do it for one.
one has to do it for oneself. That moment of recognition, I've got to do it for myself, is a moment of truth. And while it sounds totally obvious, it comes to most people as quite an insight. I've actually got to do it for myself. There's nobody out there that will do it for me. And that then goes together with that question, how will I do that? The Buddha then mentions 15 conditions which are wholesome, are creating peacefulness within and lead one to loving-kindness. These 15 conditions come first and the loving of others comes afterwards. So obviously, since his teaching is always graduated and always cause and effect this is the things these are the things that we need to practice and the first one says one should be able and what can that mean it means something quite ordinary one should have abilities one should have learned something Learning and study was greatly prized by the Buddha and also by his society. And it is in ours. Although there was a time when there seemed to be some confusion about that. Is it really necessary to learn all that stuff and then support the establishment? Because the establishment isn't any good. It's totally wrong thinking. We're not learning for that reason. We're learning in order to educate the mind. Our learning of skills, whether they are on the academic level or whether they are on the level of tradesmanship, whatever it is, our abilities are a great asset. They are an asset because we can first of all make a living for ourselves and with making a living we can also be generous, we can support others, we can support spiritual endeavors and we are not a burden to anyone. So in society, the person that has abilities is a person that is a great support for that society. We live in that society, like it or not. We are that society. The society consists of people, and we are it. And whatever we bring to it, that either improves that society or it makes a mess of it. So abilities on a very ordinary level are often mentioned by the Buddha also in the Mahamangala Sutta which is equally loved and equally often chanted 
in the Buddhist countries, which is the discourse on the great blessings. And then he also talks about abilities, abilities in, uh, that come from learning, skills that we can then also share with others. And it's not a cause to be proud of them. It is a necessary aspect of leading a good life. So that's why it actually stands at the apex of all those 15 conditions because it is strictly concerned with worldly living and also because it opens the way for a good life. The next condition is to be upright. Upright is a word that we mightn't use very much. To be upright means to be truthful, to be reliable and responsible. To be truthful to others as a matter of course, but to be truthful to oneself about oneself, and that's much more difficult. Most people run around with blinkers on. They can't see beyond the straight horizon. Can't see themselves from all sides. It's difficult to see oneself as others see one. It takes mindfulness. Bear attention to oneself. And it certainly doesn't mean blaming oneself, criticizing oneself, judging oneself. It means none of that. It means recognition. The formula is recognition, don't blame, change. Blaming is another negativity. Criticizing is another negativity. And whoever criticizes him or herself will criticize the people around them. There's no way we can stop criticizing if we started somewhere. So, that is not the way to go at it. Truthfulness is a different matter. It's like being a detective about oneself, trying to ascertain what makes one do the things one does what makes one react in the way one does. Being this inner detective is quite interesting. I love detective stories. And this one is very useful. It's one which can bring great benefit. Of course, As long as our emotions are churning, we'll have difficulty seeing the truth. But we can only do what we can do at the moment. So, uprightness is also being responsible and reliable. And it concerns a character quality which one can feel in a person. 
can one actually relate to that person on a level which is not only superficial because an upright person will not backbite will not gossip about one will not try to set friends against each other an upright person will be somebody who will be supportive but also the Buddha talked about noble friends a lot so an upright person if we have such a noble friend would also be one who might help us to see our own mistakes it's not an easy thing to do but sometimes it works not always so uprightness is a character of strength a person like that is not depend upon the emotions of others but has inner strength and that inner strength can be felt it creates an island of peace the inner strength is like a rock on which one can rest in the current that mulls around one in daily life that inner strength of course comes from practicing practicing to substitute the unwholesome with the wholesome but it also comes from another important aspect namely not looking for the appreciation of others but instead appreciating them it's so simple and yet most people hardly ever get near this ordinary most ordinary truth if we would like to be appreciated all we have to do is appreciate others why because then we have appreciation in our hearts and whether somebody else then appreciates us makes no difference anymore and that all of that the appreciation that we have ourselves and the recognition that we can be relied upon that we are responsible that we are not uh, touched by the emotions of others all that creates that rock-like quality within all of these conditions have as a feature that they are creating peacefulness on a, on a certain level now our abilities create peacefulness on a material level we don't have to worry about whether we're going to be able to eat tomorrow we're making enough money which is not unimportant 
with being upright of course it goes into the uh, inner being and again we can see that that would create also a level of peacefulness it's not the most profound level and it's not all of it but it certainly has that level because we don't have any guilt feelings we don't feel guilty about anything that we have ever done thought or said and should we feel guilty about anything we have ever done thought or said we should try to make amends to the person if that person is available and if not make amends to someone who is available and then drop the whole matter because guilt feelings are the opposite of feeling peaceful we need to recognize them of course some people have no ability for that or very little that's a matter of practice that's all it is it's a skill it's a skill to become an inner detective that's all everybody can learn it some people can do it right from the word go they're very interested in it and very capable of it and some aren't usually the people who are not so capable of seeing themselves the way they are are the people who are very covered and uh, totally immersed in their emotions or those that are totally immersed in their thought processes either way but as we meditate we get out of both of that at least for some time and so the whole thing becomes so much easier the next quality the Buddha mentions is to be straight now straight of course is similar to being upright but it also means to be straightforward the Buddha was very straightforward when he thought it was stupid he said it was stupid we had that in the sutta that we were reading he didn't go around trying to hurt anyone but he also didn't try to hide behind nice words he said flattery is also lying it's got to be straightforward truth to be straightforward necessitates knowing oneself if one doesn't know oneself the straightforwardness can easily become an insult and that's not what it's meant it's not supposed to be an insult if one knows oneself when one is able to speak straightforward from one's own experience and then it's not insulting but it can be illuminating it doesn't have to be but it can be a straightforwardness 
also eliminates social lies. You know, those little white lies that everybody thinks are necessary in order to get along. They are also lies. If we are getting skilled at this, and this is what this is all about, gaining skill, we can avoid those lies and still not insult. Obviously, to be insulting has nothing to do with a loving-kindness discourse, but to be straightforward is something that we lack, actually, in our conversations. And the Buddha spoke about not only noble friends, but noble conversations. We lack it, and therefore, because we're not quite sure how to be straightforward, we speak on such a superficial level that the conversation cannot be termed noble. It's more likely to be Arachata or something similar. The um, straightforwardness of one's own truthfulness about oneself generates, of course, very often the same thing in another person. And we then can have a discussion and a conversation which is meaningful. Meaningful because it also opens up new vistas when there's another person showing their way of dealing with themselves, it may be extremely helpful. But most people don't even want to do that. In their conversations, they like to hide behind the politeness of society so that one can't even guess at their difficulties. And yet, we all have the same difficulties. There's no secret about them. It's much more productive if we can actually be straightforward and have a discussion with another person whom we trust. And therefore that other person has to be trustworthy and upright. And if that is the case, we ourselves have to be trustworthy, of course, too. And then we do have a noble friend and noble conversation. To be utterly straight means, of course, never to be crooked, because that's its opposite. And never to be crooked not necessarily means not to be a crook. It means to have the determination and the ability in one's mind to speak and to think and to act on a level which can never be blamed. Now, that determination may sometimes not be sufficient, but that's all right. As long as we know we want to go along this path, we must also have compassion for the times when we lose our footing.
it's not uncommon to lose one's footing as long as we get back on the path. If, of course, we lose our footing completely and then slide down the mountain back into the valley, then, of course, we have to start all over again. But if we just lose our footing once or twice or even three times, but always get back on the path, we're doing fine. That's exactly what gaining a skill means. When one wants to gain the skill of riding a bicycle, I'm sure you can remember that one falls off several times before one can do that skillfully. So it's even more difficult to gain the skill of wholesomeness and the state of peacefulness. Nothing crooked in oneself. Nothing that one needs to hide from anybody. Nothing that we don't want anyone to know about. Nothing that appears to us better to be hidden even from ourselves. Nothing that could be looked upon as unwholesome. So straight and not crooked. And the next condition is to be not proud. We say pride goes before a fall. That tells it all, actually. People are proud about many absurd things. They're proud about their belongings, their family status, the uh, family background, their education. Sometimes they're very proud of their thinking ability. They're smarter than anybody else. Of course, they'll have more trouble with the uh, gaining of the skill of peacefulness because they're thinking but they're proud of that. And others are proud, rightly or wrongly, that they like people and are always friendly with them. People don't even know they're proud of that. The pride manifests when one says, for instance, I always do this or I can always do that. If one thinks that, one doesn't even have to say it. There's pride in it. Now, pride can take the reverse order. We can be proud of our negativities, too. And, of course, it's absurd, but people do that. And why do we do that? Why do we have that absurd uh, notion to be proud of our negativities because it's a support system for this ego delusion. Maybe I'm not great, but I'm terrible. So at least I'm something. And the pride does show itself when we have a notion that we are something 
special, different, or something which we can put our finger on. None of us are anything that we can put our finger on. We are in total flux. So it's ill-placed, but pride is something that people have as an underlying support system. And if we get, if we become aware of that, we can, of course, let go. But it's difficult to be aware of it. The story from the Buddhist time about a Brahmin who was called Pride Stiff. That was his nickname. And uh, it's quite um, an apt nickname because we can say that pride makes one stiff. One doesn't like to let go, so one hangs on to it. This chap was known for never prostrating to any spiritual teacher, not even to the Hindu gods that were uh, so prominent in his culture. And that's why he got that nickname. So the story says that one day he came to listen to a discourse of the Buddha. And when the discourse was finished, he went and prostrated in front of the Buddha. And the whole assembly was absolutely astounded. They were all watching this. They had never seen this Brahmin do that. And after Pride's death, his real name isn't even mentioned, <laughs> had, had prostrated, he said to the Buddha that he was most impressed with his discourse and that he believed that the Buddha was speaking the truth, but that he had a reputation to uphold. And would the Buddha accept it if he met him on the street, that instead of prostrating to him and greeting him with reverence, that he would lift his hat? And the Buddha said, yes, that's quite all right. And so they remained on that friendly footing. And he, he retained his nickname. And uh, we can see that the stiffness is also something which shows in the body. Because he was never able to get down on the ground to prostrate before. It was just that he was so impressed with the Buddha that he finally man managed that. We also say proud like a peacock. Have you watched a peacock? Well, we do have peacocks in our culture, don't we? And uh, one can see it in their walk. One can see it in their dress and in their whole demeanor. And it is said that a peacock, but this may not be an actual fact, but it is said that a peacock is a rebirth of someone who was only concerned with the outer trappings for the body. 
and now of course he's got it all he's got the most the wonderful beauty but the most awful voice (laughs) (laughs) so we do know that pride is not desirable we actually have that in our culture embedded in those sayings pride goes before fall proud as a peacock we do know it but are we aware what goes on within us deep down to find that what goes on within us deep down is not that easy it takes meditation and then when we do find it we can feel that it's most unpleasant it doesn't feel good and therefore it's obvious we want to get rid of it there's um, no question as long as we don't know about it of course we can live with it that within our daily life it creates very often feelings and reactions which are resentful disgruntled restless at taking it in stride that's the way one feels when we get into a situation such as a course like this it becomes so strong and obvious that one does make the resolution to get rid of it but in daily life we often are under the um, of the opinion that that's the way it is well it is but it doesn't have to be it can change dramatically the next of the abilities that one or conditions that the buddha mentions is one should be easy to speak to that's a very interesting aspect easy to speak to does not mean to speak on a superficial level easy to speak to means that one can relate to the person that's talking to one and relate to that person on a level of equality not feeling superior and not feeling inferior and that very often lost in many of our confrontations where there's any hierarchy now obviously hierarchy is not something that we desire but it's there and we even have it in the family we have it in the workplace we certainly have it in the spiritual spiritual teachers we have it in government wherever we look there's hierarchy and because of that that creates a situation where the lower and the upper 
don't speak easily with each other. In fact, there are languages, one of them being Sinhala, Singhalese, where the words, the word endings change depending on whom we're speaking to. If we're speaking to somebody who is higher than we are, the ending is totally different from the ending when we speak to someone who's lower than we are. And that's not the only language. It's the only one that I at least understand a little so that I know that, but there are other languages that have the same. And we can say that although in English we do speak the same language to everyone, we also change our wording according to whom we are talking to. And while that is often on a level of politeness, which is fine, the, it's always up to the one who seems to be higher in the hierarchy to be the one that's easy to speak to. But also, people who are people-shy and have no people skills need to learn that. They also need to learn to be easy to speak to and must be able to speak easily because it's a lack of love that makes them people-shy and lacking in people skills. It's um, fear that the other one might feel exactly the same way that they themselves are feeling, namely aggressive, disliking, angry, whichever way one feels. So one projects. Now this is one of our worst mistakes, and yet everybody does it. We're projecting from our inner realization of what goes on within us to the next one to the one that's either in front of us or possibly to everyone. If I feel like that, well then everybody must feel like that. There's no recognition of the fact that one can feel totally different. One doesn't even consider it because one feels strongly whichever way that is within. So that projection then in a person who has dislike and rejection and resentment makes it very difficult to be easy to speak to. But easy to speak to also has another connotation, namely the connotation of being easily corrected. Not to get irate if somebody does not support and flatter the ego. That's not so easy. Of course, the one who is doing that hopefully isn't insulting, but to be able to take criticism, easy to speak to. And particularly, of course, in the Buddhist time, he himself tried to show people, those that were his disciples, the right and wrong way. So he did have to 
criticize. It's not uncommon that he said to Ananda, who was his cousin and uh, his um, attendant for 25 years, that he used to say to him, do not say that, Ananda. Uh, whatever had Ananda had said was totally wrong. And then that gave rise to a discourse to Ananda. Got lots of discourses given to Ananda because Ananda was totally wrong. <laughs> so usually Ananda would answer, would the Lord then please show me the correct way or something like that? So he was easy to speak to. This aspect of being easy to speak to is rare. It's something to be learned. And if we learn that skill, we will have a very good chance on the spiritual path because it is due to inner humility. If we have sufficient inner humility to know that Seeing we're not enlightened, it's impossible that we know everything. And maybe somebody else knows something that we don't know. If we have that humility, then we are easy to speak to. But without that humility, it would be very difficult to really go this pathway where it makes such a difference that life and the quality of life and the quality of one's inner being changes completely. It also, sometimes in the discourse, it says, easily corrected. Now, we know when we have anything to do with children, there are those that one can correct easily, and others that are put up a tantrum if they're not supported. And so the parents quite often think twice about um, scolding because they're sick and tired of tantrums. we aren't so far removed from childhood. A lot of people, many, cannot be easily corrected. It's the ego just can't handle it. It just can't stand it. And if that's the case, and if that person doesn't learn the skill of this particular one, then the pathway is blocked. Because if correction and criticism or anything like that cannot be accepted, then there's no way one can progress. Naturally, it should go hand in hand with the appreciation of the good parts in the person. But it certainly is a necessary aspect of learning. This is gaining skill and easy to speak to is gaining that skill where we can let the ego subside long enough and humble enough so that it will not create a disturbance. All disturbances that exist are created by the ego. There is no other disturbance possible. 
But Buddha is particularly talking about that one, that when one is spoken to, that one actually takes it in. Now, when there is criticism, one should listen to that quietly and peacefully. And then investigate it. Is that criticism well-founded? Or does it come out of a viewpoint which does not take all aspects of the situation into consideration? If we find the criticism well-founded, we should use it as a learning situation. If we find that it doesn't take everything into consideration, we could then possibly talk to that person once more and see whether one can find mutual agreement. But if one can't take it at all, one doesn't have a chance at either way. Easy to speak to makes for peacefulness. We need to see that every one of these conditions which the Buddha puts out are peaceful. If we're easy to speak to, it's a peaceful situation. And it doesn't, isn't hurtful. It's not resentful. I think that every person has an opportunity to have that happen to them or to be the one that levels criticism. So, all of it can be helpful on our pathway, which also leads us to the loving heart, because a loving heart needs peacefulness. It's not possible to have a loving heart with churning emotions or with negative thinking. It's just not possible. The two are utterly opposed to each other. So, inner peacefulness creates a loving heart.